Women Generation. Next Women Generation is a platform that you can find inspiring story of young leaders who work to promote sustainable development and gender equality. Today, I'm joined by an incredible young woman from Barbados, Ronelle King. She is the founder and director of the Lion Leggings, Caribbean Alliance Against Gender-Based Violence. Ronelle was awarded the Queen's Young Leaders Award in 2018 for her effort to end violence against women in the Caribbean. First, I would like to learn what motivates you to work on gender-based violence. As a survivor myself, I found that, um, you know, I was not really speaking up for myself in the same way. <laughs> so when I founded um, my organization, Life and Leggings, it was both an advocacy for myself, but also for others and seeking catharsis and um, just creating a space in which other women can do and find the same Um and in itself being a revolutionary act because obviously in a society that can be defined as a rape culture it means that you're more likely to shame a victim or victim blame them than support them it means that you are in other words, creating an environment in which uh, the perpetrator could feel much more safe or rather they feel even at times justified or they're not going to be penalized or punished for their actions. Um, so you have women who never speak of their experiences. And these, obviously, if they don't speak of it, it goes underreported. So in... What motivated me was that I wanted to, you know, end this practice. I wanted to empower survivors. I wanted to empower myself as well. I wanted to create a change, really, in the society. Um, I wanted to do more than the standard, you know, don't rape women or, you know, um, put the onus on women to prevent their rape as though that's ever worked, but actually create change. And so... Again, to answer the question, what motivated me was that I got really frustrated with how things were being done and I wanted to do more and I wanted to do better to create the change that I knew could be possible. How did you start it? Um, so in 2016, I founded the organization on November 24th, um, the day before the 16 Days of Activism. Um I went online, I was frustrated because um, it, we were having a lot of conversations that, well, that month, actually, it was a very frustrating month. And prior to that month, um, earlier in the year, I had an experience of almost being um, kidnapped on my way to work and me trying to go to the police station to get justice and being turned away. So um, when this conversation had happened in November, it was around um, the topics of child abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault. All these things were happening all in this month and all the conversations that were happening as well. Um, I had spent quite some time over the years, you know, educating people on these 
particular issues and the realities in which women face, how does it feel, you know, to be a survivor and carry these, these traumas with you? And, you know, you may change one opinion, you may change two, but it was not actually creating, you know, the, the massive um, change I was hoping, you know, these revelations are, you know, um, what makes someone kind of change your perspective. And so it kind of felt like the timing was right, but it felt as though, um, you know, I, I really had reached this boiling point and I felt as though, you know, the timing's right. I can, I think I can create a conversation in a way in which people are going to listen, but also in a way in which women feel comfortable in which they could, you know, speak out um, and not feel as though they're going to be shut down because, you know, it's one thing to be the one dissenting voice, but it's another to have so many others, you know, join with you. You feel much more empowered. And so what I did was that I went online, I posted my first experience, no instructions, nothing. I just posted my experience. And then I did that, um, because I, I messaged a couple of the friends. Um, I told them, this is, I had this idea and this is what I wanted to do if they could support me. And they start, um, they shared it, eventually shared their own. And within the hour, it actually started taking off. Almost immediately, actually, it started taking off. And by the first day, like my timelines were flooded with the hashtag um, life and leggings. That's what we chose um, because it was heavy on alliteration, but also because it was a conversation starter um, as well as the fact that I felt it, it pretty much defined what we were trying to convey. Um, it essentially translates, you know, the experiences of Caribbean women, like it's almost like saying, you know, walk in my shoes, essentially understanding my experiences. These the experiences that are listed under this hashtag are the realities that Caribbean women go through in their country and in this region. It is not, it's not to say that these experiences only affect Caribbean women. It's that these experiences are from Caribbean women about their experiences in the Caribbean. And so, um, yes, it spread from Barbados, my country, to Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, and, and so on, like, for the most part, all the um, Anglophone Caribbean countries and one or two outside of the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, it spread into the diaspora in the global north, and then it started going to the global south. So you first started it in Barbados? And then it spread out to other countries in the Caribbean. So how do you engage with women and other people on social media platform? It was very much so well received. Um, I, I think it was a little bit more received than I expected it to, if that makes sense. Um, I, th I felt it was going to resonate with a lot of women, but I wasn't expecting it to break the internet in the way that it did. We had... Um, female politicians stepping in and speaking of their life and leggings experiences. You had um, regional recording artists. We had 
people, uh, women of power especially, so the conversation became one of an intersectional nature because you had, um, you know, trans women, um, you had lesbian, bisexual um, women, um, you had migrant women and so on, all these different women speaking about their, their experiences. I had seen some backlash examples when young women talked about sexuality and gender-based violence because it is controversial and taboo. So have you experienced any backlashes when you started the lion leggings? Right. So um, when we first posted, um, it was well received by women. Obviously, they were they were the ones to see it first, and so they they pretty much just wanted to know what we were doing, um, and they were posting their own experiences. But the first male reaction was one of shock. <laughs> um, there were a lot of men who were just absolutely shocked. They knew that women had, you know, one um, experiences of rape. It was not, you know, um, unknown to them that obviously women have been raped or that they experienced sexual harassment and that kind of stuff. But they were surprised at the sheer number. I mean, some women were posting like 20 experiences, 25, like they were, it was again, like a breaking point, a catharsis. So women were like speaking and talking about these experiences. And, you know, when you post something, you then, re- or you read someone's experiences and you realize, oh wait, I had a very similar experience. And then you remember something that you push back. So then you go back and you put another experience, if you get what I mean. But, um, Right, and so men were shocked by the sheer number. They were also shocked by who was posting these experiences. Like a lot of the women that they cared about um, had experiences too, and they didn't know. They didn't know that these women were walking around with this trauma. Um, and women that, like, some of their mothers, their grandmothers had that experience because, as because life and like is so well received immediately. By the next day, it was being reported in the newspapers, not just locally, but regionally. Um, It had support from even student groups and universities, not just in the country, but outside in the region. Um, There were some people, again, in the diaspora outside of our community who were seeing it because this was before Me Too, um, who supported it and, you know, and that kind of stuff. But as you rightfully said... (laughs) Um, or rightfully acknowledge in these cases of cyber activism or cyber feminisms, um, there's a backlash. And so a backlash did come um, in that there were a lot of men who felt that maybe, you know, some of us were lying. They felt as though, you know, that some of us may have, like, obviously you were not going to get everybody to understand um, that we must have done something to, you know, have these experiences. Some of them even started a reactionary hashtag, <laughs> um, you know, life in pants, which basically speak to the fact that they misunderstood. Again, they, it's, it's basically their all lives matter to black lives matter. And, um, they tried to detract the conversation. They tried to um, 
you know, silence women, essentially. They try to hijack the hashtag by using it to speak to their own experiences or what they felt were experiences, which weren't um, comparable in the sense, not saying that you're comparing violence against men to violence against women, but it wasn't really detailing violence against men. It was just men using the hashtag to really complain and talk about um, silly things like how if they carry a woman on a date and a woman expects to be have um, the meal paid for, like it's a false equivalence and it, it's almost insulting. And so the, women, the men actually who, who found it very shocking, what they did was that they kind of saw that as a moment of, you know, now bystander intervention, really. So they kind of gathered <laughs> the men, in a sense, um, and called them out and said what they were doing was wrong, that the women had a right to speak to their experiences, especially acknowledging that women don't usually come forward. So to silence them or to hijack this hashtag or to, you know, call them liars is, you know, to perpetuate the same actions that they're speaking out against. And so... It it had a very interesting um, and, for the most part, kind of traditional <laughs> acknowledgement when you come into cyber activism. But for the most part, when you talk about life and leggings, especially now, almost um, about which is five years, sorry, almost five years later, um, is a household name, and it has a good um, connotation to the term. Even men still remember it. And they still remember when women in the Caribbean essentially broke the internet because they were frustrated with um, the ways in which how they were treated as women in the country and the region. You transform an online advocacy platform to be an organization. So how did you mobilize support to make this happen? By the next month, actually very early up, we um, went and we registered the organization. Um, the persons that I would have initially messaged who would initially have supported, we would have formed the first executive of the organization. Um, we mobilized quickly offline. Um, we had had a, a town hall um, by the next month, the December And so we spoke to a lot of the women um, in country and outside, because, um, you know, the use of technology, about what they really wanted to come out of the movement, what were their specific experiences um, that they were hoping that we could address. And so we began with that. And then I kind of continued with my vision of creating a space for Caribbean women to really challenge um, gender-based violence because the organization, the movement is survivor-centered. It's not one that speaks, just speaks about survivors. It's one in which that it creates platforms for women, survivors to break their own silences and take control of their own narrative, um, advocate on behalf of their own selves. Um, but we created the organization, as I said, and the movement to shift the culture. So to shift the culture, we started to do a lot of work interrogating um, gender-based violence in the country and the society. 
um, doing a mapping of, you know, the historical gender-based violence um, because our, our countries are post-colonial. So for us, the first instances of gender-based violence that would have uh, happened for us was during the times of slavery. Um, and moving up, if you get what I mean. Um, so we started, we did work with an exhibition with the Barbados Museum and Historical Society. Um, and we also published um, in a journal about the exhibition. And what it did was that um, it, can, it created a space in which we examine rebellion and activism in Barbados, documented 390 years, as well as um, created that space in which persons in the society would better understand activism, what it seeks to address, them understanding the types of activism that have gone before and how these actions are very revolutionary in nature. So we had, it, that project came about because we had a march um, that was our first project in, as the organization in which we did a march that was the first of its kind. We had a march in seven Caribbean countries together um, with different sectors, public sector, private, religious, government, um, civil society, and so on and so forth um, to kind of challenge the gender-based violence to put create a platform for women to talk again of their specific experiences, their specific challenges to the people who have the power to make the change, um, as well as to reclaim the spaces in which we felt most violated. We spoke about sexual harassment a lot on the hashtag. So we went through the streets and, you know, kind of reclaimed it, um, in a way that was cathartic and with support, we were all there together resisting the sexual harassment that we often face and feeling empowered to tell the people, the very people who harass us every day, you know, that we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And so, you know, again, there, when we did the first two actions, Life and Legends, um, the hashtag, and did that, there were a lot of people who didn't quite understand. So for that project, it was a great way for them to understand why those two actions were important as well as for them to understand how they can be a part of movements like life and leggings, how they could support it and how they could be agitators to change as well. Because there are a lot of people who come and message me and ask me, you know, how did I get the courage to do what I did? Or if I have any advice or, you know, if I think that it's society to be open to these things. So by documenting all of these actions and creating that space in which they could think and initially challenge them to also do the same, they, they feel as though they have um, a responsibility that if they see something wrong in the society, it's not for them to put it off to somebody else. You know, you see something wrong in the society, like people will make a comment within their privilege and they would feel as though it's somebody else's responsibility because they feel as though they wouldn't be heard. All it really takes is one dissenting voice. It just takes one person to highlight it 
and it can snowball into something more. So if you have a frustration with, let's say, that persons with disabilities are struggling to, to um, with transportation in the country, you speak out about that. You have a platform. Social media has created a platform in which you can be heard by any, almost anybody. What are important lessons learned from running an online advocacy platform to promote women's rights and eradicate gender-based violence? You need support. <laughs> Um, I find I, I get a lot of support. I've always gotten a lot of support from other organizations that have the same mandate as me because this work can be very rewarding, but it could be also very draining. It could be very, um, it can affect you as well. And um, it's most important to build those connections to keep you going because you feel, let's say, so good about, pushing towards getting a, a legislation, um, you know, passed. And then, then it falls down at the implementation stage. You, the police are not implement, implementing it. So you feel kind of, you know, um, like it's like a blow. You feel a little bit discouraged. But you have all these women who are doing this work long before you and they continue to pick up and encourage you and remind you why you're doing this um, and support you. You... When you win, we all win, essentially. Um, what I've also learned is that um, you wouldn't know everything, so you can rely on them as well for some information, some advice. You could collaborate in terms of services. Um, some of them, again, are much more established than I am, so they have shelters, whereas we have none, so we do referrals to their shelters. Um, we have a platform a, a online platform and that's bigger than theirs so we get their information out in terms of you know the hotlines and um again the knowledge of the shelters not just in my country but regionally and stuff like that um in terms of services like if you need legal advice or need um legal support um those kinds of things but what I've also learned is that it's hard being a civil society organization. Sometimes you get support. Sometimes you don't in terms of finances. Sometimes um, we operate within a, a particular uh, oddity in which my country, despite being in a global self, despite, um, you know, it's our experience of the gender-based violence and, and so on and so forth. We are considered a developed country in terms of the human development index and other factors as well that are very similar. So we sometimes get left off of um, funding lists. <laughs> and so they feel as though other Caribbean countries um, are more deserving of the funding are much more in need. So sometimes we don't qualify for funding that would be absolutely critical to the work that we're doing because of simple things like that whereas despite the fact that we have a high human index which means like we have like free health care free education you know the quality of life for a person is good in terms of you know the services that could be available the implementation um, the fact that the country is economically suffering because, you know, we're 
we had, I think it was the third largest debt for a country in the world, um, I think about three years ago. That factor about the human development index um, kind of meant that we get left off these lists in terms of funding. So if the government does not have funding, we will be relying very heavily on international funders or private sector funding and private sector is also affected because of the finances in the country. So we have particular issues like that. So we rely very heavily on like feminist organizations that are um, not so rigid in their, um, you know, qualifications or supporters um, in the diaspora and locally. I would like to ask you about your family and community. So how your family and community inspire you to work on gender-based violence? Mom is um, a disability rights advocate. She um, is a special needs um, teacher. She, in that way, advocates for those who are marginalized within the society. And my dad is a, um, a sports person, internationally recognized, and somebody who also works with my mother um, in terms of the um, youth and persons with special needs. So I think in that way, I've developed a sense of, you know, that's how I, I've recognized very clearly persons with the intersection who are at the intersections in this society who are disenfranchised and marginalized because they've always been for the most part a part of my life um because i i would have helped the both of them in in many ways um people like my grandmother who would have taught me <laughs> to stand up for myself and you know to stand up for others if they're you know taking advantage of me um the, the values instilled in me in my formative years but my society would have supported the work that i do they're supportive for the most part um and proud of the work that i do wonderful so this is my last question for you do you have any messages for other young people especially young women who want to start something new um, who want to start something different in their community really and truly just map out your goals um for your action what are your short-term and long-term goals and um do something that years from now you can be proud of. <laughs> um, don't overthink it because you may not necessarily, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if I would do everything exactly the way in which I did it, but there's no perfect action. <laughs> so don't stress about those kinds of things really. You have a purpose, you want to create a change, and that's really all that matters. So as long as you have the best intentions, as long as you, you know, do it in an action that does not harm you or harm others <laughs> that can create that change, just go for it. You never know, you know, what you could achieve if you don't hold yourself back. Ronald, thank you so much for joining me today. Robin, thank you for having me. For listening to Nicholas Generation, to support this self-funded project, please click like and subscribe to our podcast. If you like this interview, please leave us review. You can also send us feedback on our social media platforms and website. Stay tuned to our next speaker.